Hello and welcome to the July 6, 2021 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here to share highlights of what's new in Annals since our last podcast. Despite near-unanimous objection from its advisory panel, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration granted aducanumab approval to treat Alzheimer's disease on June 7, 2021. In a commentary published in Annals of Internal Medicine, a member and former chair of the advisory panel and an aducanumab site investigator explained why this unprecedented accelerated approval is problematic for clinical research and patient care. Under accelerated approval, a drug is approved based on its effect on a surrogate marker of disease rather than clinical outcomes. Aducanumab's phase one study indicates the drug reduces beta amyloid, a surrogate marker of disease, but whether beta amyloid alone is a valid surrogate for the treatment of Alzheimer's is notably unclear and still a topic of ongoing important study. With the surprising approval, treating an amyloid level becomes clinical practice. The authors express grave concern that aducanumab's approval will have important consequences for drug development, regulation, and patient care. While the world waits for the results of the randomized clinical trials required to confirm aducanumab's clinical benefits, insurers and payers will have to use the scant information available to determine which patients should take it and how to cover it. The co-pays for aducanumab, which may be as much as 20% of the total cost, will be added to the already substantial financial burden many Americans' families face due to Alzheimer's disease. Also, clinicians will have to address with patients uncertainty regarding whether the drug is even beneficial or safe. According to the authors, the effect of aducanumab's approval will reverberate for years. Next is a randomized control trial that found that sodaglithazone increases days alive out of the hospital compared to placebo for patients with type 2 diabetes at high risk for current hospitalization due to recent admission for worsening heart failure. This is important because increased rates of rehospitalization and death are significant components of disease burden in this patient population. Previously reported results from this trial showed that sodaglyphosin reduced total occurrences of cardiovascular deaths, hospitalizations for heart failure, and urgent visits for heart failure relative to placebo by 33%. The current article reports a pre-specified analysis of the study that examines an outcome very important to many patients, days alive and out of hospital. More than 1,000 patients with type 2 diabetes and reduced or preserved dejection fraction, more than 1,000 patients with type 2 diabetes and reduced or preserved dejection fraction who were recently hospitalized for worsening heart failure were randomly assigned to take sodaglyphosin or placebo. The primary analysis included hospitalizations for any reason. The researchers found that the days alive and out-of-hospital rate in the sodaglyphosin group was 3% higher than in the placebo group, so that for every 100 days of follow-up, patients in the sodaglyphosin group were alive and out-of-hospital 2.9 days more than patients in the placebo group. According to the researchers, the study findings may provide additional patient-centered outcomes to capture the total disease burden and could have important implications for patient quality of life and healthcare costs. Next is a case report that suggests that for some patients with severe refractory Graves dermopathy, combined immunosuppressive therapy can be effective and safe and produces relatively rapid results compared with monotherapies or combination therapy with rituximab and plasmapheresis. This is important because Graves' dermopathy can be painful, debilitating, and disfiguring, 
and current therapies produce limited and variable responses. The latest clinical practice guideline from the Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes Organization, commonly referred to as CADIGO, offers guidance for managing blood pressure in patients with chronic kidney disease who are not receiving dialysis. The guidelines are an update to 2012 recommendations on the same topic and reflect new evidence on the risks and benefits of blood pressure lowering among patients with chronic kidney disease. The updated guideline comprises 11 recommendations and 20 practice points. The synopsis, published in Annals, focuses on blood pressure measurement and target blood pressure in patients with CKD. Based on the evidence, the guidelines recommend targeting a systolic blood pressure of less than 120 milligrams of mercury measured by standardized technique in the office. Standardized blood pressure was recommended because of concerns that routine office blood pressure measurement would lead to inaccuracy in measurement and potentially over-treatment. For this reason, the Contigo 2021 guideline makes detailed and strong recommendations regarding standardized blood pressure measurement, and the target systolic blood pressure of less than 120 should only be applied when standardized blood pressure measurements are used. The guideline adapts a target-specific blood pressure of less than 120 for persons with CKD because of the benefits of intensive blood pressure control on cardiovascular and all-cause mortality. The effects of intensive blood pressure control on the risk for chronic kidney disease progression are less certain. The authors conclude that there may be certain subpopulations of people with chronic kidney disease where the evidence to support the systolic blood pressure target of less than 120 is less well-developed and hence the risk-benefit trade-offs are less certain. The Accelerating COVID-19 Therapeutic Interventions and Vaccines Workgroup is a partnership of experts representing government, industry, and academia that is coordinated by the National Institutes of Health. The next article describes how this collaborative group designed, developed, and launched nine master protocols for evaluating therapeutic agents for COVID-19. The authors detail several trials currently underway using the master protocols and the lessons learned so far. Their hope is that this initiative will help to lessen the mortality and morbidity of COVID-19 and that the process developed may inform responses to future pandemics. Next, authors from Allegheny Health Network in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania report the case of a 65-year-old man with chronic hypertension and hyperlipidemia who presented to the hospital with one week of bilateral lower extremity discomfort, intermittent headaches, and two days of dyspnea, 10 days after receiving a second dose of the mRNA-1273 vaccine. The patient had no known exposure to heparin, a medication that has been associated with thrombocytopenia with thrombosis syndrome. The authors were unable to identify other causes of thrombocytopenia with thrombosis syndrome, including acute SARS-CoV-2 infection, other concurrent infections, immune thrombocytopenia or thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpur, leading them to conclude that the diagnosis might be vaccine-induced thrombocytopenia with thrombosis syndrome, as defined by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Brighton Collaboration. Despite rapid and exhaustive treatment, the patient unfortunately died. The authors note that COVID-19 vaccines that use mRNA technology are proven safe and effective and have been used with no such events in millions of patients. This is the only report to date of possible vaccine-induced thrombocytopenia with thrombosis syndrome in an mRNA vaccine recipient. The authors conclude that such a rare event, even if confirmed by additional reports, should not prevent persons from receiving the benefits of these vaccines. 
In accompanying editorial, Drs. Allison Pishko and Adam Cooker discuss the uncertainty around whether vaccine was the inciting factor and reiterate that even if it were, given the rarity of the adverse event and the high risk of thrombotic complications of COVID-19, this case report should not dissuade people from vaccination. Robotic surgery is a form of minimally invasive surgery that aims to overcome the limitations inherent to both laparoscopy and open surgery. However, the description of current platforms as robotics is a misnomer because they lack any automation, but rather are surgery-controlled devices. The initial cost of the most prevalent robotic platform is at least $1.5 million plus additional costs associated with training and maintenance. In order to provide value, robot-assisted surgery must demonstrate clinical benefit to justify the steep financial burden. Researchers from the University of Texas, Houston, reviewed 50 published randomized controlled trials comprising more than 4,800 patients to assess the quality of evidence and outcomes for robot-assisted abdominopelvic surgery compared with laparoscopy, open surgery, or both. The majority of studies showed no difference in intraoperative complications, conversion rates to open surgery, or long-term outcomes. Overall, robotic-assisted surgery had longer operative duration than laparoscopy, but no obvious difference was seen versus open surgery. The authors conclude that robotic surgery currently has no clear clinical benefit given its considerable cost and lack of improvements over conventional surgeries. Next is a randomized controlled trial that found that bedside discussions were efficient, but the use of medical jargon and discussion of sensitive topics were associated with patient discomfort and confusion, suggesting that communication skills are essential for effective bedside teaching. Patient-centered care involves patients in all aspects of medical decision-making. For inpatient care, this includes discussions with the patient's illness during ward rounds, which can take place outside of the patient's room or at their bedsides. These discussions typically involve medical jargon and terminology that a patient may not be familiar with, which could lead to misunderstandings or discomfort. This is important because knowledge and comprehension are considered important predictors of adherence to treatment instructions. As such, it's important to determine the best location for case discussions, but research on this topic has been lacking. To fill this knowledge gap, researchers from the University Hospital Basel, Basel, Switzerland, randomly assigned 919 patients at three Swiss teaching hospitals to receive either bedside or outside-the-room case discussions to compare these two styles in helping patients understand their disease, the therapeutic approach being used, and further plans for care. In summary, the researchers found that discussions outside the room versus those at the bedside resulted in similar patient knowledge about their medical care, and an objective rating of patient knowledge by the study team was also similar for both groups. However, the bedside presentation group had higher ratings of confusion regarding medical jargon and uncertainty caused by team discussions. Bedside rounds were found to be more efficient, taking less time than outside-of-the-room discussions yet patient-physician interaction time was increased. Sensitive topics were less frequently addressed at the bedside. An accompanying editorial by Dr. Michael Lacombe, Annalism Internal Medicine's Humanities Editor, says these findings should encourage physicians to bring teaching back to the bedside and suggest that professional organizations should promote the practice. He writes that patients want to feel cared for with proper training that includes setting rules with each individual patient Bedside discussions can enhance that feeling while being efficient. Vaso-occlusive events are excruciatingly painful and the leading cause of hospital and emergency department use in patients with sickle cell disease. 
the burden of emergency department care and subsequent hospitalization is high for these individuals. Patients presenting to the emergency department with severe pain from these events are often faced with structural and interpersonal racism and receive subpar care. Next is a prospective cohort study that found that treatment at an infusion center was associated with substantially better outcomes than treatment in the emergency department for patients with sickle cell disease and uncomplicated vaso-occlusive crises. Researchers from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine studied 483 adults with sickle cell disease who lived within 60 miles of an infusion center in Baltimore, Milwaukee, Cleveland, or Baton Rouge between April 2015 and December 2016 to assess whether care in infusion centers or emergency departments led to better outcomes. They found that the patients treated in an infusion center received parental and pain medication an average of 70 minutes faster than those seen in the emergency department. Patients in infusion centers were 3.8 times more likely to have their pain reassessed within 30 minutes of the first dose and four times more likely to be discharged to home. These results suggest that infusion centers are more likely to provide guideline-based care than emergency departments and that care can improve overall outcomes. These findings are important because adults with sickle cell disease have been historically underserved by the medical community. Better access to high-quality care should result in better outcomes for both the patient and the medical system. HIV-related mortality has been decreasing since the introduction of effective treatment in 1996 due to improving treatment options and evolving care guidelines. But the extent to which persons entering HIV care in the United States have higher risk for death over the years after linkage to care than their peers in the general population over the same period remains unclear. Researchers from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill used data from the National Center for Health Statistics to compare five-year all-cause mortality in 82,766 adults entering HIV care between 1999 and 2017 at 13 U.S. sites participating in the North American AIDS Cohort Collaboration on Research and Design, and a matched subset of the U.S. population. Persons in the general population were matched to those in the HIV population by calendar time, age, sex, race, ethnicity, and county of residence. The researchers found that the difference in mortality between people with HIV and the general population decreased over time from 11.1% among those entering care between 1999 and 2004 to only 2.7% among those entering care from 2011 to 2017. Of note, mortality decreased across all demographic subgroups studied and decreased more among non-Hispanic Black people than non-Hispanic white people. According to the authors, the decrease in mortality among persons with HIV likely reflects advances in care and treatment, new guidelines indicating earlier treatment, greater engagement in care, higher levels of viral suppression, and a trend toward linking persons with HIV infection to care earlier in the course of infection, this study is important because understanding differences in mortality between persons entering HIV care and the matched U.S. population is critical to monitor opportunities to improve care and outcome. Next is a study that explores the association of surges in COVID-19 hospitalizations with patient outcomes. Many hospitals have encountered surges in COVID-19 caseload during the pandemic. However, the impact of caseload-related strain on hospitals' COVID-19 survival rates remains unclear, especially independent of widely reported temporal improvements in survival over the course of the pandemic. 
This study involved 588 U.S. hospitals during March through August 2020. To describe the association between hospitals' severity-weighted COVID-19 caseload and COVID-19 mortality risk adjusted for baseline patient, hospital, and temporal factors. Each hospital month was stratified by percentile rank on a surge index, a severity-weighted measure of COVID-19 caseload relative to pre-COVID bed capacity. The impact of surge index on risk-adjusted odds ratio of an in-hospital mortality or hospice discharge was calculated using hierarchical modeling. Of 144,116 patients hospitalized with COVID-19 and included in the study, 54.2% of patients were admitted to hospitals in the top decile and 19.2% in the top one percentile of the surge index. Overall, 17.6% of the patients died. The surge index was associated with mortality across ward, ICU, and intubated patients. The surge mortality relationship was stronger in June through August versus March through May. The authors conclude that despite improvements in inpatient COVID-19 survival over time, surges in hospital COVID-19 caseload remain detrimental to survival and potentially erode benefits gained from emerging treatments. Supporting surging hospitals could save many lives. In an accompanying editorial, hospital medicine physician and analyst deputy editor Vineet Chopra writes, Quote, it is all but certain that future surges, if managed using our current paradigm, will not only harm patients, but weaken the strength and resolve of our most precious resources, our people. Simply put, we owe it not only to our patients, but also to our clinicians to come together when COVID-19 strikes. These findings serve as powerful motivation to move away from the status quo, end quote. Additional new materials in annals include On Being a Doctor essays and annals graphic medicine articles. And this brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and please return in two weeks for our next podcast. Until then, I encourage you to take a closer look at some of the new material I've mentioned. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.